Hello, sports fans, and welcome to Let Me Speak, the show that shares sports' biggest headlines explained, uninterrupted, and maybe a little audacious. I'm Joe Braverman, and today's topics we'll be discussing are breaking down every game from an insane NFL divisional round, plus a preview of the conference championships and who should be favored to go to the Super Bowl, and Could James Harden really leave the Brooklyn Nets? It's episode 58 of Let Me Speak, and it starts right now. What's happening, everybody, here on Thursday, January 27th, 2022, episode number 58 coming at you of Let Me Speak. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. We have got a lot to talk about, and before we get into it, let's just talk about what's going on here in the New England area. We've got a big snowstorm coming up, so I hope everyone around the area and basically all around the East Coast, hope you're uh, protecting yourself, staying safe. You know, we've got a foot, at least in my area, at least a foot of snow. Some areas might be getting over a foot. Some areas half a foot. But we just got a big snowstorm coming up this weekend. So everyone, get those snowblowers, get those shovels, get everything prepared as best as you can. Because this is the biggest snowstorm of the year. And we've got to be prepared for it. Because we are New England and... We'll take any kind of weather we can get. Also, uh, we've got maybe possibly a big announcement uh, coming up, heading into uh, Super Bowl week and Super Bowl weekend. So be on the lookout for that. We might have a very special guest joining us. But let's dive right into the sports stories. And of course, everyone cannot stop talking about divisional weekend this past weekend in the NFL. Many are calling it the best weekend of football ever in postseason history anywhere through the hundred plus years of the NFL this weekend is the best and I honestly agree with them because it was incredible every game was decided on the final play you had a game go to overtime and three game winning field goals and to start this off I mean the the weekend was so crazy we have to devote a segment just for the divisional round And then our next segment will be about previewing the AFC and the NFC championships. But let's just break down every single game, big takeaways coming from it. And we start with the game that kicked it off on Saturday between the Bengals and the Titans. Evan McPherson, let me tell you, this kid, this rookie is getting himself already to the top of the kicker ranks. You look at preseason, you know, expectations. You're thinking Justin Tucker is a top kicker out there. Robbie Gold is a top kicker, you know, um, Nick Folk, you know, just to name a few. Evan McPherson is now in that category. You know, if you're talking from a fantasy perspective, this is a guy you need to start. He's a must start heading into next season for 2022. And it's his four field goals, including the game winner from 52 yards that sends the Bengals into the AFC championship. And, what an incredible story for Cincinnati. I mean, you, me personally, for preseason expectations, I expected them 
in a competitive AFC North to be at the very bottom, you know, between the Ravens, the Steelers, and the Browns. I expected them to be the fourth team in fourth place. And now here they are, one game away from the Super Bowl in the AFC Championship. I mean, keep in mind, this franchise hadn't won a playoff game heading into these playoffs in over 30 years, and now they've won two. And they're back in the AFC Championship for the first time since I think they went to the Super Bowl when Boomer Esiason was their quarterback. I think that was like the late 80s, and I think uh, that game they did get blown out by uh, Montana and the San Francisco 49ers. But the story about this Bengals team is just as surreal because Joe Burrow got sacked nine times. How do you get sacked nine times and still win the game? Someone explain that to me, how you get sacked nine times and win the game. That was one of the keys I talked about last week is that if Tennessee could rattle Joe Burrow, get him sacked multiple times, then they would have an answer and they would have the advantage. And that happened. That's exactly what happened. They got to Burrow. They made him unsettled, but they still lost. That just blows my mind. But to say just one little note on the Cincinnati side real quick, they just knew how to capitalize on Tennessee's mistakes. They converted the turnovers into points. They got, you know, they were field goals, but they still were able to capitalize regardless. Now, speaking of those mistakes, I think the biggest scapegoat right now in Nashville for the Titans is Ryan Tannehill. I mean, let's be honest. This guy got picked off three times. The very first pass on the very first series, he gets picked off. The game-winning field goal was led by an interception at midfield. Okay? I think, you know, was everyone expecting a Patrick Mahomes or a Josh Allen or a Tom Brady kind of performance out of Tannehill? No, but you think he would have been a lot better than he was. And honestly, like, he's not, you know, everyone knew he wasn't, you know, a prime and elite quarterback. But now I just think after this game, this just shows that I don't think he'll ever be able to lead a team to a Super Bowl. He just does not have it. You know, when you see the running game get shut down as much as they did and, you know, Derrick Henry just didn't have it. And Deontay Foreman wasn't running the ball. That means the game was in Ryan Tannehill's hands. And he made some good throws. That touchdown to A.J. Brown, a very pretty throw. Very few guys can make that. But in terms of being a game manager, if you have a situation like this where the game is tied or you're down and you got to lead a drive, I don't think he's ever going to be able to do that because we saw – the strategy from Cincinnati is when you shut down the running game and you make Tannehill try and win it for you, Tannehill is going to crap his pants and he's going to totally blow the game. And right now he is public enemy number one right now in Tennessee, but it's not, you know, he's problem number one. Problem number two, I just thought was the coaching of Mike Vrabel because when you're watching that game, Derrick Henry just didn't have it. You look at the two point conversion after the penalty uh, when they scored the touchdown, you see the the fourth and one that um, Henry had. He just didn't have it. He didn't look like him old, his old self. I mean, he rushed 20 times for 62 yards in a touchdown. But as a coach, if you're Mike Vrabel, you have to look at that and you got to try and balance it out because Deontay Foreman, as I mentioned, was running the ball really well. He was the leading rusher with 66 yards, but he only carried it 
four times, four times. You have to assess early on if Derrick Henry is going to be your guy or at least have some kind of balanced attack because Deontay Foreman's not coming off a foot injury. He's not coming off foot surgery. You know that he's closer to 100% possibly than Derrick Henry. And if you see early on that he doesn't have it, you just plug Foreman in a lot more than Henry. You don't keep running with Derrick Henry and hope for the same thing. You know, when Sanity is repeating the same thing over and over, expecting a different result. And that's what Mike Rabel did. So I just thought the combination of Tannehill not having a good game and just poor coaching by Mike Vrabel and that Titans staff kind of led to where they are right now, sitting on the couch, making a tea time and watching the Bengals in the AFC championship. And not to toot my own horn, but I did think Derrick Henry wasn't going to look the same. And I thought the Bengals were going to pull this out. So props to Cincinnati for getting another monkey off the back and, and using that confidence, really. We'll talk about it in the next segment, but the confidence that Cincinnati shows to get themselves into the AFC championship. And you'd think that would be the biggest upset from that weekend, you know, the number one seed going down at home. But then you look at the nightcap and the other number one seed goes down and San Francisco goes into Lambeau. Robbie Gold kicks a 45-yard field goal and the 49ers are back in the NFC championship. Now, this 49er team, I'll say it right now, they are not the most talented, but they are just a tough team with a ton of grit. Early on into the year, why else would the 49ers trade up to the number three pick to grab Trey Lance? Because they thought Jimmy Garoppolo wasn't going to do it. And here he is managing the game. I know he went 11 to 19 for a buck 31 and interceptions. And I know that he's playing for his job, but still just the fight that the San Fran team has, you know, Debo Samuel wasn't effective. Jimmy Garoppolo wasn't throwing the ball, but you have Elijah Mitchell. You got making the big plays to George Kittle. You've got a team that just has grit. It's a ton of grit on this 49ers team. And ultimately it was the defense leading the way for this 49ers team. I mean, with a high-powered offense that Green Bay has, with a virtuoso MVP and Aaron Rodgers, you only allowed 263 yards to one of the top offenses in the regular season and maybe of the last five years. But you also only allowed 67 rush yards. That just shows how well the defensive line is. And we saw during that Super Bowl run how effective that line was with uh, Armstead and Bosa on the ends. And just this team doing so well defensively, like Green Bay should be a team that's unbeatable at home in Lambeau Field for the most part. And they did it. They went into Lambeau. They went from California to Green Bay, where it was basically a zero degree, negative degree wind chill, snow falling. And here they come upsetting the Packers at home. Unbelievable. But on the other side of things, because that's what everyone's talking about, is what happened to Green Bay. Everyone thought, myself included, that this was going to be the year. This was going to be the year Aaron Rodgers and the Packers at least get back to the Super Bowl. But everyone had their eyes open to what has plagued Green Bay all season long, and that was special teams. The special teams was the kryptonite for Green Bay. You look at everything that happened. Mason Crosby missed the field goal. Mason Crosby had a field goal blocked. 
There was the blocked punt for the touchdown that tied the game up. And the worst part of it is on the game-winning kick by Robbie Gold, the Packers only had 10 men on the field. 10 men. So I don't know where Green Bay is going to go from itself. And honestly, you know, also Aaron Rodgers, we know what we don't know what's going to happen. Who knows what's going to happen? But I think his legacy is really coming into question. You know, everyone thought first ballot Hall of Fame, one of the tops in the business. And maybe he is. But if you're he's going down the Peyton Manning track in terms of not getting it done in the postseason. Okay. Look at the listen to these numbers. In his career versus San Francisco, he's five and four. Okay. Including these back-to-back losses, both in the 2020 NFC Championship and in this game. Since his Super Bowl win in 2011, he's 11-10 and 10 in the postseason. 11-10, and 10, no Super Bowl appearances. So there's a lot to question about Aaron Rodgers. You know, maybe you back him up from the John Elways or the Joe Montanas. Maybe he falls out of that top five just because his lack of postseason success if he's got another postseason failure is he really one of the best in the business maybe he is but in terms of where he ranks that's going to be moving around quite a bit at least in my eyes because I thought this was the year for Rodgers and sure enough he didn't perform the way he wanted to the offense was very lackluster as I said he didn't have a run game and sure enough San Francisco pulled off the upset and have got themselves into the NFC Championship. And we knew heading into Sunday that they would be on the road. The question was, was it going to be in LA, or was it going to be in Tampa? And we now know that LA, the Rams, are back in the NFC Championship. They're hosting it after the 30-27 win. But I got to tell you, Brady and Tampa Bay almost pulling off deja vu. I mean, this was like Super Bowl 51 all over again. Kind of a different story, different situation. L.A. led 27 to three with about five minutes left in the third. So there was still plenty of time than when that Atlanta Super Bowl. But with four minutes left, it was 27-13. And L.A. nearly blew it, okay? Multiple penalties. Four fumbles recovered. And honestly, this, this was probably a game that, that Tampa should have won. They should have won, but... The defense just let them down. They lost the game, especially the secondary. When you listen to Bruce Arians in the postgame saying the the 44-yard catch by Cooper Cup, he was saying it was supposed to be an all-out blitz. So it was just one mistake by Levante David when you look at that replay. He doesn't blitz. That sets up a whole string of miscommunication, and Antoine Winfield Jr. just lets Cup blow right past him, make the grab from Matt Stafford, and sure enough, Tampa has their chances of going back-to-back squashed. But for the most part, for LA's side of things, their defensive line stepped up in a big way. We're seeing the experience from Vaughn Miller, like I mentioned last week. Aaron Donald, I said, had a big game. And then you've also got Leonard Floyd. That defensive line, if they continue to play the way they are, they're going to find themselves back into the Super Bowl because they did a great job of collapsing the pocket on Tom Brady, and basically using the formula that has knocked off Tom Brady for many, many years is when you collapse the pocket, you get him out of there, you get some pressure on him, you win that game. And that's exactly what the Rams did. And Matthew Stafford, 
I think the debate is over about, you know, can he do it in the playoffs? Can he do it in the playoffs? We're now seeing that he is one of the best that this game has seen in recent memory. Okay. Maybe not all time. Great. But in terms of getting the monkey off his back, we're seeing now that it was more of Detroit's fault than Stafford's fault. Stafford did everything he could and look at what happens when he's got weapons around him. The, uh, combo of cup and Beckham, you got, the running back combo of Akers and Michelle. When you put an offense and a defense around Matt Stafford, he can win the game. I mean, look at what he did during that, that last drive. After the 44-yard catch, he was a game manager. He knew exactly what to do. So props to the Rams. But again, going back to Tampa's side, I give a lot of credit to Tom Brady. I mean, he deserves a ton of credit for engineering another massive comeback, okay? The fact that they were down 27 to three and he converted off of the turnovers. Those turnovers were at or around midfield and he got touchdown, touchdown, field goal, touchdown, touchdown. The way he was able to do that props to Tom Brady. The fact that he still did it at 44 years old is very impressive. Now, is it his last game? I don't know. I feel like all signs are pointing to that probably was, and he's going to retire, but you never know. With Brady, he's got too much of a love for the game. So I think, you know, if there was a way to go out, I think Tom Brady, you know, would he have loved to go out with a Super Bowl? Yes. But with the season that he had, with all the injuries, the offensive line just getting hit the most, especially without Tristan Wirfs, I would say that Tom Brady can hold his head up high if he goes into retirement. So Props to TV 12. He'll always be, he'll always be a fan favorite for me, but then the nightcap to end the weekend. OMG! what the heck unbelievable game between the bills and the chiefs An instant classic. That's going to be looked at for years and years to come. And in the end, it was Kansas city going back to the AFC championship, hosting the game for the fourth straight season. Now, there's so much to uh, discuss about this game itself, but overall picture is what I see. Josh Allen, Patrick Mahomes, that is the next Tom Brady, Peyton Manning. That is this generation's Brady Manning. And others could argue, wait, 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 what about Joe Burrow? He's really good. But in terms of head-to-head matchup, back and forth, back and forth, these two. These two are the absolute best. These will be the next Brady Manning. That's the first general statement. General statement number two, Patrick Mahomes is the best in the business today. And this is a reminder. I know everyone wants to say Aaron Rodgers. Everyone wants to say Josh Allen, but it's Patrick effing Mahomes, okay? This was my preseason MVP. And even though the Chiefs had what I would call a lackluster year in terms of the way they started and how they finished, it's basically two different seasons. I still think if there's a guy that I need to go win a game, the number one pick for me is going to be Patrick Mahomes. This is just looking at the arms, you know, the sidearm to uh, Kelsey, getting Pringle involved, getting Kelsey involved. This guy, Josh Allen played a great game. Don't get me wrong. The way, the what he's done in this postseason, the performance against the Pats and this performance against the Chiefs. Nine touchdowns, no interceptions. Unbelievable. But Patrick Mahomes is just that much better. That much better. And 
I salute both of these teams for an incredible game, but there were some moves by Buffalo that really confused me. I mean, it was really more towards the end where, you know, I kind of scratched my head saying, you know, what are you doing? Because they had played a great probably 14 minutes and 30 seconds or 14 minutes uh, even up until that point. Because what Josh Allen and this team was able to do, marching down, Gabe Davis getting four touchdowns, Stefan Diggs getting involved. Unbelievable by Buffalo. But I look at Sean McDermott and that coaching staff. After you take the 36-33 lead, you kick it into the end zone and you leave time on the clock. You leave time on the clock. Why not squib it? Why not make Kansas City run the ball? You're taking time off the clock. Do you just not trust your special teams enough to make some kind of stop? And don't get me wrong, it was a miracle by Kansas City. But the defense basically leaving the middle, not necessarily like the the middle, but at least by by the hash marks, you know, relative in that area, they left it wide open. And they let Mahomes go down the field with 13 seconds left. I mean, really 10 seconds left, because that's when they said they kicked the field goal at three seconds and got it to overtime. So I would say stop whining about the overtime rules and play defense. Make a stop. I don't care if you're gassed or not. Make a stop. That's that's kind of what I say about this overtime thing, because this was the exact same scenario that Kansas City was in back in 2019. Tom Brady, Patrick Mahomes going back and forth, back and forth. Overtime comes. Patriots win the toss. They go down the field. They score the touchdown. The game is over. And then you got Kansas City whining about it, saying, oh, we get the ball. We get the ball. We want the ball. Okay? Make a stop. Play some defense. And maybe that's the Patriots side of me going against Buffalo right now because just make a stop. Play defense and shut them down. Don't let them go down for 50 yards and kick the field goal. Don't do that. And then we won't have to complain about these overtime rules and making sure one person gets it every time. No, the overtime rules are 10 times better. Look at 2010, okay? Viking Saints. They go into overtime. Saints get the toss, and they kick a field goal to win it. Vikings don't get the ball at all. Back then, all you had to do was put points on the board, and the team doesn't get the ball, and you win the game. That's all you had to do, and you still had people complaining there. So the overtime rules the way they are right now. You score a touchdown, you're fine. How about play some defense and make them kick a field goal? How about trying that? I understand you're gassed and tired, but make a stop. You're in the NFL for goodness sake. And again, that's just me as an armchair. But regardless of what happened with the results, every single game from division with a divisional round was an absolute classic and will go down in my mind as the greatest playoff weekend in NFL history. we got our reactions from the divisional round out of the way let's set the stage for this sunday 3 p.m 6 p.m the afc and the nfc championship one of these four teams is going to be the super bowl Bengals, chiefs 49ers and rams so let's just break it down 
really quickly. And we start with the AFC Championship, which will start the day on Sunday at 3 p.m. on CBS. Now, in just watching some of the highlights from the divisional round and just following them all season long, I see an extremely important part of each team, and that's the secondary. I think the secondary is going to be tested. A lot of people have skeptics and are skeptical on how well the secondaries can play. I mean, you had a lot of people targeting Eli Apple uh, for Cincinnati. He might be targeted a lot, but he was the one that made the play against Tennessee. He got the deflection, led to the interception. But I think these targets are a lot tougher that he's going to have to cover. He's probably going to cover Tyreek Hill and Byron Pringle and Nicole Hardman and a bunch of other guys. So I think it's going to be really, really hard. But what's good is that, you know, I trust the Cincinnati safeties. I like Von Bell. I like Jesse Bates. But I think they've got to really step up. Because in terms of the cornerback plays, I trust Kansas City's uh, secondary more than I do uh, Cincinnati's. Just for the fact in that they're not really they're not proven Cincinnati that is you got you know Eli Apple he's been with the Saints he's been with the Giants so he's a veteran but I don't think he's really been tested as much as he's had in this postseason and like I said he's got a lot of speedsters he gonna he's gonna have to deal with and the safeties Bell and Bates they're probably gonna have to double team Kelsey quite a bit probably help out those linebackers so that's what I see on Cincinnati's secondary for the Chiefs secondary, you know, we saw it against Buffalo, not having Tyron Matthew really hurt the Chiefs last week. I mean, you look at a ton of miscommunications from the Honey Badger in that safety position, not having him there. The secondary was basically lost, absolutely lost. They let Stefan Diggs, Gabe Davis, uh, Cole Beasley, some of these guys get some easy grabs and some easy yards. And then even Josh Allen, you know, having him there to stop the run. Is absolutely huge to have Tyron Matthew there is to stop the run. So I think when you're looking at the secondary side of things, I would favor the Chiefs just because, you know, Tyron Matthew, if he's going to play, which it sounds like he is going to play, I think that's going to be huge because he's basically that free safety who's controlling everything. And I think he might be, I think he's still one of the best. He continues to be undervalued, undervalued just because, you know, when you talk about the Chiefs, you talk about the offense and how strong they are. But defensively, the way they've gotten better from the defensive line all the way to the secondary, I would favor Kansas City on that side of things. But from the secondary to the defensive line, I think for the Bengals, they've got to control Patrick Mahomes and try and keep him in the pocket. Don't let him escape because we know not only can he throw it, he can sidearm it, he can toss it underhanded, but he can scramble. He can scramble and not get hit. That's what's so important. And I look at Trey Hendrickson as really the number one guy who's going to have to lead that charge and really control Mahomes. Because if you create basically a ring around him, you give him no chance to get anywhere to do any kind of scrambling. Because I think the best throws that Mahomes makes is when he's on the run, when he's rolling out to his right or his left, and he's throwing it, you know, sidearm, gunslinging it. I mean, that that's what I see the Bengals having to do. That's what I do. And I would say on the other side for Kansas City is to get pressure on Burrow. But Tennessee got the pressure on him. They got nine sacks, but still 
Burrow was able to make things happen. So I think, you know, just really quick on the secondary, when you've got guys like Jamar Chase and T. Higgins and Tyler Boyd, I think that's where Tyron Matthew is really going to, that's where he's going to take charge and where he's going to have to step up because he's going to have to communicate to those cornerbacks and really provide that extra layer of comfort in terms of a young Cincinnati secondary or a young Kansas city, excuse me, a young Kansas city secondary where they probably don't match up with chase at all. I mean, very few people match up with Jamar chase, but limiting everyone else, Uzama at the tight end, you know, and um, Higgins and Boyd, as I mentioned, limiting those guys is going to be very important. And if you get Joe Burrow a little unsettled, make him scramble, make him scramble and make maybe some Mahomes throws, then, you know, Kansas City would have a shot. Then they would have a shot. But Chris Jones, Frank Clark, I trust them to do that. Interior line of scrimmage is going to be very, very important. But that's on the defensive side of things. The offensive side of things, I look at which I look at the running back position. Who's running back is going to be a lot more effective. And if you had to ask me right now, I would take Joe Mixon over everyone in the backfield that the Chiefs had, you know, with Clyde Edwards Hilaire, Jarek McKinnon, uh, just to name a few guys. I think Joe Mixon is going to be much more of a factor than people think because we we look at both of these quarterbacks, Burrow and Mahomes. They play so much better when they have a line, when they have a running back that can help you out and they can contain the line of scrimmage. And we see Mixon not only running the ball, but catching it out of the backfield is very, very crucial for Cincinnati. And if Joe Mixon has a really good game, and I mean a really good game, then the Bengals got a chance. But I just think for for Kansas City, you know, they don't need eye-popping numbers like they do from Mixon. They just have to at least get defenses thinking about the run. That's all they got to do is get them thinking about it and start game planning rather than being one-dimensional with the pass offense. But if you had to ask me who would I favor, who would I pick, you know, you have Cincinnati, who's a very, very confident team. They're young, but they're confident. You listen to Burrow and Chase after the game saying, we, we expected this, we expected this. But then you got Kansas City having the experience, the home field advantage. Arrowhead is a very loud place to play, especially in the postseason. You know, I, I love Cincinnati. You know, they're a great underdog story, but I think Kansas City is going to find themselves victorious. I understand that Cincinnati beat Kansas City uh, a couple of weeks ago. But you have to think with the veteran coaching staff that Andy Reid has, they're going to look at that tape and they're going to look at what failed them essentially in that game. They're going to look at that and they're going to make the adjustments. I don't know if Zach Taylor is going to do the exact same thing. So I think Kansas City is going to find a way to win that game. I think it's going to be a little closer than people think, but I would favor Kansas City and I would pick the Chiefs to once again go back to the Super Bowl. But their opponents it's more of a coin toss for me in the NFC championship. Cause you got the familiar foes from the NFC West. You got the Rams and the Niners, you know, it's always hard to beat a team three times. Okay. Don't, don't get me wrong. San Fran has beaten LA twice so far and ultimately got into the playoffs by knocking off this team in overtime in week 18. So it's always hard to beat them a third time. I don't know what Sean McVay and that coaching staff for LA has up their sleeve, but I do know 
And the defensive line, once again, is going to be a big factor because let's face it, Garoppolo, Jimmy G, he's not, he's not Aaron Rodgers. He's not Tom Brady. He's not any of these guys. But in terms of limiting his weapons, that's what they have to do. It start well, it first starts with the run game. That's weapon number one. You stop Elijah Mitchell, you make Garoppolo beat you. And in terms of a game manager, you know, he can't do it for 60 minutes. If you can do it for maybe half or maybe a little more than half, then you're going to be in a good spot if you're the Rams. But I expect Von Miller, I expect uh, Aaron Donald and Michael Floyd to set the tone on the line of scrimmage. They set the tone. They get a couple sacks early on. They get about maybe two or three. Then Rams are in business because they control the line of scrimmage. They stop Elijah Mitchell on that run. That is huge for LA. But then you have the other weapons. You got to limit George Kittle. You got to limit Debo Samuel. That should be priority number one. You limit Debo in the running game. You stop him in the passing game. You have to think that the secondary for the Rams are going to mix up their play calls in terms of who's covering Debo Samuel. You know, it's not going to be Jalen Ramsey every single time, but it's a matter of Who's covering him and how much can you stop him? Because let's face it, against Green Bay, he was kind of limited a little bit with Samuel. And if he has a better game than what he had, it's a wrap for the 49ers. But from the Rams defensive line to the Niners defensive line, that's also very important. Getting Matthew Stafford to throw some interceptions. I look at Bosa and Armstead, like I said, controlling the line of scrimmage. That's really what it comes down to between these two. Whichever defensive line controls the line of scrimmage is going to have the advantage heading into the NFC Championship. You know, you have a guy like Bosa and Armstead versus Miller and Donald. I personally would take the Rams side of things because I expect Matthew Stafford, you know, he's playing the best football of his career right now since he's been in L.A. And we saw it in the second half of the season that he's thrown some picks. And we know that the Niners can do it. But can they do it for a third time, though? I just I just don't see it. I see Stafford getting all his weapons involved. I think a big game is coming from Cam Akers and Sonny Michelle in the backfield, and that's what I think helps the Rams get into the Super Bowl. And honestly, I'm kind of rooting for them because, as I said, if you go back to the preseason, I predicted Chiefs over Rams in the Super Bowl. And if that comes true, you can just – I, I'll I'll pay whatever you want because I never would have expected it. But I'm going to favor the Rams in this one. I think it's probably going to come down to a touchdown between these two. I think it's going to be very, very close. But it's hard. You know, I just say it over and over and over. If you're playing a team three times in one season, especially in the NFL, it's very hard to beat them all three times. So I love what Kyle Shanahan and this 49ers team has done this season, you know, getting back to their Super Bowl winning ways. But I just think they fall in LA. The Rams get their vengeance and they get themselves back into the Super Bowl. But regardless of what happens in the AFC and the NFC championship, I'm very much looking forward to what happens and who will qualify for Super Bowl 56 in LA. Turn now to the NBA. And last week I mentioned the all-star break is coming up 
But that also means the trade deadline is right around the corner. And of course, the story around the NBA has been, where is Ben Simmons going to go? This dude has basically been held out all season long, continues to pay fines for being out instead of totally healthy. But that's not the big story coming out of this. The story is about rumors of maybe the NBA's best player, at least top 10, James Harden. And reports are coming out that Harden is unhappy in his time in Brooklyn, and he could move out after this season, after this regular season. Now, let's just put into frame what the contract options are for Harden, okay? He's got an opt-in of $47.4 million for next season, for 2022-2023. During that time of free agency for this upcoming summer, he could sign an extension that could pay him over $60 million in one year. $60 million. That wouldn't happen until the very last part of that contract, which would be from this time about maybe four or five years from now. But the opt-in clause opens the door for an even bigger payday. And we already know Kevin Durant has signed his extension. He's going to stay. We don't know about Kyrie Irving. We don't know about him. But now we're hearing rumblings that Harden could deny that opt-in and could go into free agency and leave Brooklyn. And there are a lot of factors that we're hearing about this. We're hearing about how he doesn't like being in Brooklyn. I don't know if that's like the city or just being part of the, the franchise or the organization, you know, it's hard to say. But another factor is that he's unhappy with Kyrie Irving being a part-time player in that he can only play road games. Now, James Harden, thank you for coming to reality and actually realizing how much of a toxic player Kyrie Irving is. Because who wouldn't be annoyed by Kyrie Irving? I mean, this dude can't play in New York or anywhere that has a vaccine mandate until the mandate is lifted or he gets vaccinated. That's two options. And we have seen how rooted he is into being unvaccinated and being within his beliefs. I would be, who wouldn't be upset with him? Who wouldn't be upset that Kyrie Irving is basically a part-time player? If you had, you know, one of your best workers at whatever job you is saying, oh, I'm only going to be part-time. I'll only work during the week and not on weekends. And I've only, I'll only work three hours instead of the usual eight. Like, who wouldn't be upset with that, okay? Everyone is upset with Kyrie Irving. Me in particular, I've voiced my opinions about Kyrie Irving. And, you know, he's basically the Antonio Brown of the NBA in that he's got incredible talent and is no doubt has the skills to be a Hall of Famer. But his personality and the way he is in the locker room is just the cancer. It's it's toxic. You don't want to be around that. And James Harden is finally, you know, opening the door about that. And what's funny is you kind of make the comparisons for how he forced his way out of Houston a year ago. He was saying, oh, I don't like the preferential tweet treatment that Russell Westbrook was getting. You know, everyone's got to be here. And Brooklyn's doing the exact same thing. They said Kyrie Irving's not going to play until the mandate is lifted or he gets vaccinated. And sure enough, Brooklyn turns the cheek on that and says, no, we actually need him if we're, if we're going to win a championship. So there's comparisons to that. And I could see why James Harden wouldn't be happy about that, seeing all these guys getting preferen preferential treatment. Now, 
There's no doubt in my mind that he stays with Brooklyn for the rest of this year. No doubt about it. Even hearing reports that uh, Nets management is not taking any offers for James Harden. There's no doubt about that because I think the postseason is the postseason is going to be indicative of what James Harden is going to do because we're already hearing that he could come out. But what if Brooklyn wins the championship? What if they're still the title favorites after that? Would Harden be more inclined to opt into that money and go for the extension? Or if they come up short yet again, would he say, you know what? I want to get out of there. Now, Harden has already done everything there is to do. He's an MVP. He's a scoring champ. The only thing he's missing is a title. And I think Brooklyn does give him the best chance. You know, I don't know if I see him matching up, you know, if he does go anywhere else with anywhere else. I don't really see it. But now we're hearing about Philadelphia holding out plans to go after James Harden this summer. Now, as I mentioned, the Sixers are planning to keep Ben Simmons past the trade deadline, and they're going to hold out for James Harden over the summer. Now, I honestly, you know, when the reports were going around during the, uh, the trade market for James Harden while he was in Houston, I didn't really see Philadelphia as a real good landing spot just because the play style of Joel Embiid and James Harden don't really match up to me. But if we're hearing Daryl Morey and management saying, we're going to hold on to Ben Simmons past the trade deadline, we're going to hold out for James Harden and hope we can make some magic there. That not that just a spit in the face to this current 76ers team and everyone within a part of it? Let's be honest. They're 28 and 19. They're sixth in the East right now. You know, no one expected them to be a title contender. Me, I didn't expect them to be a title contender. I still don't think they are. But still, the fact that you're saying, oh, we're going to basically use this. We're throwing in the white towel and we're going to look towards 2022 and 2023 when we've got a chance at getting James Harden. Now, that you know, Daryl Morey has been in a ton of controversy from his time in Houston to where he is now in Philly. But come on, what do you think Joel Embiid and this whole team is thinking when he's hearing stuff like that? Look at what Embiid has done in his last six straight straight games. 30 points. 30 points in six straight games. He's got a double-double in all but one of those games. Listen to the last four games that he's scored. 50 points, 40 points. 38 points, and 42 points, okay? You want to talk about wasting a guy's talent? Philly is doing that. How about capitalizing on these kind of opportunities? Because this is a guy, Embiid, who is so injury-prone that he could get injured once again and miss maybe a year or do a Clay Thompson kind of thing and miss two years, okay? When you're wasting this guy's talent, if he's putting up numbers like this, and you want to waste it because you want to wait for next year, that's a shame. That's an absolute shame. The 76ers organization has to be the biggest mess right now in the NBA, one of the biggest messes at least, because they thought after the comments from Doc Rivers and Joel Embiid about Ben Simmons that, oh, we can patch things up. We can patch things up. No, you can't. If the dude, Ben Simmons, is literally saying, I want to be traded, I don't want to be here, we've seen in this day and age that management accepts that. They respond to that and say, okay, we'll trade you. We will absolutely do that. And now they still think they could have done it 
after Ben Simmons has his phone in his pocket during practice, not giving any kind of effort and still holding him out. What a shame for Philadelphia. So there's two sides of the spectrum of this thing. I think Philadelphia is shooting themselves in the foot for wasting Joel Embiid's talent just to go after a guy who may or may not even be available for next offseason. That's the Philly side of things. And the Brooklyn side of things is that things are probably going to be unchanged, at least for this year. I think, you know, Durant, Irving, and Harden, they're all dedicated to going after the championship. I know they're struggling a little bit with Kevin Durant out of the lineup, but they're still title favorites in my eyes. I like what Chicago, Milwaukee is doing, but with a healthy team, I still would have Brooklyn as my title favorites. But what's funny about these reports coming out now in January makes you really got to listen to the next couple of months to find out what James Harden is going to do. Is he going to stay with Brooklyn or does he leave? the time once again to look around locally and see how our teams are doing it's time for our let's get local segment of the week and of course the big story within the boston area is the newest baseball hall of famer the only selection for 2022 by the baseball writers is big poppy david ortiz maybe boston's favorite son is going to cooperstown He's headed into the Hall of Fame. And just really quickly before we talk about the Ortiz side of things, everyone's talking about Bonds, Clemens, Sosa, Schilling, not getting into the Hall. Honestly, I'm just kind of over it. You know, I thought it was, you know, it it could have been okay if they don't get in the next, the first couple of years, but they eventually got to make it at some point, whether they had steroids or not, you know, just put a little asterisk on it. That's all you got to do. Put them in and then just put a little asterisk saying X and X was accused of steroids and stuff like that. But Bonds is still the leader in home runs. Clemens is still the leader in Cy Young Award wins. You know, just do all that. But that that's a topic for another time. I kind of want to see them in. But let's talk about Big Poppy. In my mind, there's no doubt he, has sh- he should have been a first ballot Hall of Famer. No doubt about it. He got 77.9% of the votes. And I think it should have been more. I really think it should have been more. Just listen to the numbers. He's a 10-time All-Star, seven-time Silver Slugger, three-time World Series champion, including the World Series MVP in 2013. And everyone's talking about, wait a minute, he was part of steroids. He, He tested positive for steroids. Okay, well, for all the haters out there, let's break this down. This was in 2003, okay? I understand the report came out in 2009. But it said in 2003, they tested positive for steroids, okay? What happened after 2003? Not only did he test negative the rest of the way, but he didn't even make any noise in his career until after 2003, okay? 2004 is when he became big freaking poppy, okay? That's when he became the David Ortiz that Boston fans have grown accustomed to. So listen. 2003 and before doesn't even matter. Wasn't doing a thing. What was he doing when he wasn't on steroids? 
He was just in walk-off home runs left and right and being the most clutch hitter in all of baseball. But I'm just happy to see that he got in because some some old school writers would look at the designated hitter position and kind of just throw it away. But hey, if they put Edgar Martinez, Larry Walker in the Hall of Fame, David Ortiz should be in the Hall of Fame. Now, in terms of his impact in the city of Boston, I think he's probably going to be, he could be arguably the most influential Boston athlete. I still think he's the second most behind Tom Brady because let's face it, let's look at what David Ortiz did. His larger-than-life personality was for one, okay? And not only that, but he was instrumental in the 86-year curse, breaking that curse in 2004. You look at the walk-off in Game 4 of the ALCS against the Yankees in 04. You look at the walk-off in Game 5. You look at what he did in Game 7 of that same series. Coming back from 3-0 to beat the Yankees, get themselves to the World Series, and win it for the first time, okay? He's... Probably, at least to me, he's going to be my favorite athlete, you know, probably behind Tom Brady. But in terms of most influential in the city of Boston, David Ortiz, Big Poppy, is the guy. He is the guy. When you ask anyone about just naming a Boston athlete, most will say David Ortiz, Big Poppy. And just the way that he grew into the community. I mean, you look at 2013, how instrumental he was in uh that season not just in the in the uh world series run but also after the bombings the speech uh against kansas city when he said this is our effing city i mean come on who doesn't who doesn't love ortiz for doing that and then of course being a super cool clutch hitter really helps it out and i'll never forget you know just to get uh, personal about it my first ever red sox game was with uh, my mom my dad and my brother We went in September of 2007. That was when the Red Sox won their second World Series. This was in September, and it was against Tampa at Fenway, against the Tampa Bay. They were known as the Devil Rays at that time. And what happens at the end of the game? A walk-off home run by David Ortiz that just squeaks over the right field wall. And there's a photo that, you know, you can't see it uh, behind me, but I still have a photo of me and my dad basically screaming to the heavens and celebrating. And the fact that David Ortiz walk-off was my first ever Red Sox game. That photo still exists. And what the Red Sox have, they have what's called a winter weekend uh, most of the time, uh, pre-pandemic, obviously, when uh, it's basically kind of like a kickoff leading into spring training. I got to go a few years ago with my good friend Hannah Moran, who made an appearance on this show. I got to meet Big Poppy. He got to sign the photo. I told him it was the first game, and he thought it was just, he said, oh, that's really cool. So just, I'm very happy to see David Ortiz into the Hall of Fame. I salute Big Poppy for taking his rightful spot in Cooperstown. And come on, the video of him with Pedro Martinez when he got the call, unbelievable. Absolutely unbelievable. I just have, I've had a smile from ear to ear after hearing, you know, and making it official that Ortiz is in the Hall of Fame. So congrats, Big Poppy. Super happy for you. And I'm also super happy to see the Celtics finally winning some games and being consistent the way they are. They start out with a win in D.C. against the Wizards. Then they go to an absolute blowout against Sacramento this past Tuesday. And it was finally a big enough lead that they couldn't even blow. It was a 33-point lead at halftime. 
which eventually turned into a 53-point win against the Kings. 128-75 to was the score. Now, I do like seeing Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown getting a ton of points. 66 points they combined. I think there was at one point where their combined points was more than Sacramento's team points. <laughs> that was just, I was kind of giggling on that one. But the realistic side of things is that Jason Tatum shouldn't be relied on to get 51 points like in DC or 39 points like against Sacramento. Okay. What we're learning is how many pieces, you know, can fit around Tatum and Brown. How good can this team be working around those two guys? Because we're seeing it. We're seeing Tatum and Brown start to work with each other. And I think, you know, the results might not be there all the time, but when you're just looking at the way that those two are playing with each other, I think, I think it's getting better and better and it's giving fans more hope that these two can actually play together. Now I should, I should say, don't get your hopes up fans. Don't get your hopes up about, you know, saying, Oh, this is where they turn it around. Now they're going to get to the top. Calm down. Okay. Just calm down a little bit because Yes, do, don't get your hope. You can be happy. You can be excited about the way this team is, but there's still a ton of holes. You know, you look at a guy like Dennis Schroeder who's continued to struggle. I understand these are two great games, but still losing to Charlotte, losing to Portland, not two good looks. And I understand the schedule might be a little easier just looking at it real quick. They've got two road games back-to-back in Atlanta, in New Orleans, and then they've got home at Miami, and then home versus Charlotte. So those are those are not easy games. So just don't get your hopes up about these two games. And I understand this team now is somewhat fully healthy. Marcus Smart made his return against uh, the Wizards, but just don't get your hopes up about this full this full squad because we have seen it all year long, basically for two years, essentially a year and a half, that this is a 500 ball club. This is all they are. They've got good stretches, then they've got poor stretches. Now, until they see it on the court, I'm going to say that, you know, they're going to struggle once again. When that is, I have no idea. But they're going to get themselves back to that 500 mark. I mean, right now they're sitting at 25 and 24, and that's kind of where they're going to be. That's where I think they're really going to sit. But, of course, the big question has to be about the trade deadline. Are you going to blow this squad up? And I think in seeing what Marcus Smart did returning from uh, COVID protocols, Two games, two big wins. He's got a huge plus-minus rating. I think it was like at plus 60 over the two games at one point, I think I heard from the uh, Celtics broadcast. So I think Smart might have played his way into staying with the Celtics. You know, I really see a few untouchable pieces right now. I see Tatum Brown. Those are definitely untouchables. Rob Williams, he's not going anywhere. I think Smart has played himself into the rotation I think uh, Grant Williams, Josh Richardson. Um, I, th- I think those guys definitely. Now, the only obvious piece that I would see the Celtics and Brad Stevens may shopping around is Dennis Schroeder. I mean, he's on a minimum contract. He's on an expiring contract. And he seems like the most flexible piece at this moment. You know, maybe I could throw in Ennis Freedom if he continues to play himself out of the rotation. That's That's kind of kind of what i'm seeing 
with this Celtics team. So I think this next stretch of games is going to be absolutely huge. And we're probably not going to see any moves until the trade deadline itself. You know, we're probably not going to see any moves from them. So we're just going to continue to see this team go, you know, 500 and just hang around there every single, every single stretch of games. But Hey, I'll take a blowout win. I'll take a blowout win over the Kings. No doubt about it. Any win is a good win, but especially if you're winning by 53, but a team that really needs to win are the Boston Bruins. And they have had a tough stretch of games. You've got, the 5-3 loss to the Ducks, and then the overtime loss last night in Colorado to the Avalanche. Keep in mind, those two are maybe the top teams in the Western Conference right now. And those games kind of bring Boston back down to earth, and I still think there are a little ways to go after uh, the post. You know, there's still a little ways to go in terms of elite status. Now, right now, they're still in a playoff spot. They're currently in the last playoff spot. And I think they're about eight or nine points ahead of Detroit. So they're still in good thing right there. But they're just coming back. As I said, they're coming back down to earth. And it still shows that there needs to be some improvements to get to, again, back to the top status uh, in the Eastern Conference, in the Atlantic Division. And it's kind of going back to uh, what's hindered the team in recent history. And that's defense, you know. You got bad turnovers leading to things like the shorthanded goal against Anaheim on Monday. And part of that is just lack of depth behind the first and second line. You got a ton of injuries. You obviously got Zaboro, who's out for the year with the torn ACL. Matt Grizzlick has missed the last few games. He's been hurt. And just the defenders that they have behind McAvoy and Carlo, you know, Earl Vikaninen. I think I'm saying that right. Vakaninen, you know, whatever it is. He's still young. He's still only a rookie. You also got Derek Forbert, who's still getting accustomed to the way Boston plays out there on the ice. It's just the lack of depth. That all it is. That's all it is. And if you get Grizzly back, you know, I think that defense does get better. You know, of course, Brad Marchand's playing hurt, obviously, but he's still playing great. Still that line change. I continue to rave and rave about seeing uh, Pasternak, <clears throat> excuse me, on the second line with uh, Taylor Hall. And we're seeing how much better Hall and Pasternak is from that switch. But I just see the defense. I see the defenders, you know, if they're getting healthy. Now, Vakaninen, he still played great, but he's still young and just inexperienced. And if you get past Grizzly, you get some depth on that third third line and in the fourth line in terms of defense, then you're, then you're spot on. Because you got you got guys like Connor Clifton. He can do it. You got guys like Mike Riley. He's experienced. You know, just a couple of guys after that. And you should be you should be in the clear. So that's number one, what I see with the Bruins is just lack of depth on defense from the first and second line. The second thing I gotta see really is Tuka Rask. You know, he has struggled since returning. And I shouldn't say struggle in terms of he hasn't gotten the win, but he's letting up more goals. Than, than usually, you know, giving up five to Anaheim on Monday. Of course, he got pulled in the first period against Carolina a couple of weeks ago. Now, <coughs> excuse me, I think I think what has to happen is he's got to get some more time against top teams. That's what I think. He can get plenty of time to get any leftover rust. And obviously, it's going to be difficult uh, within a week because I believe it's they play on February 1st, and then they have a whole week off. 
until the next set of games. But I think, you know, to, to shake the rust off, you got to make sure he's in there against Pittsburgh. You got to make sure he's in there against Carolina, just so you can really see, okay, how healthy is he? Is he really that close to 100%? Because I think you have maybe one of the top backup goalies in uh, Linus Olmark. I think, you know, you plug him in, you don't lose a step at all, you know? So I guess there's no need to worry about that if you ever have to put Olmark in, but you just got to make sure, at least on my end of things, I want to see Tuca, I want to see him get more time against the really tough teams. You know, he played last night against Colorado and then the game, as I mentioned, against the Ducks. I want to see him against more top teams just to see, you know, is he really shaking off the rust? Is he still going to be that guy that the Bruins somewhat supposedly rely on in terms of being the number one postseason goalie for that team? So that's really what I'm curious to see from these, this Bruins team heading into the next slate of games. But as I mentioned right at the top of the show, we got a snowstorm coming up. So not only do we have to buckle down, but all these teams in the Boston area have got to buckle down because it is sure to be a heck of a winter season. to end our show we look at our lol moment of the week and honestly there are a lot of moments if we're going to be completely honest you got the wizards blowing a 35 point lead to the clippers earlier in the week you've got um just just looking really quick you got obviously anthony edwards in the post game saying i feel like black jesus you got um kansas city donating to uh, buffalo charity i think something about 13 or something like that 13 seconds but there was one moment that happened last night in a post-game press conference in the NBA that definitely made us a lot of scratch our heads, and it gets us another repeat offender on our LOL. So this week's LOL moment of the week goes to Giannis Antetokounmpo, the defending NBA champion, the Greek freak, once again back in our LOL moment now. If you remember from the first time that he had made our LOL moment of the week, this was right after the Bucs won the NFC, uh, NBA championship, and he pulls up to Chick-fil-A, and he says, 50 nuggets, please. So it's him and food that just made us laugh out loud. This week, more so last night, we go to food once again, and it's once again chicken. At the post-game press conference, after the loss to the Cleveland Cavaliers, he shows up with a bucket of wings. That's right. He brought chicken wings to his press conference after losing to the Cleveland Cavaliers. Now, I, I'm trying to break this down. I mean, first off, we're noticing that Giannis loves food. He absolutely loves food. He loves chicken-based products. He's got chicken wings. He got chicken nuggets. I mean, I'd be very surprised to see a sponsorship from Chick-fil-A coming up i feel like that's the road that we're getting into but you know it's just funny to see him you know hearing hearing just he's he's in a bad mood obviously if you if you lose a game to which by the way cleveland's playing incredible incredible basketball 
the fact that they they beat Milwaukee, they beat the NBA champs, but just to see him like sort of in his bad state, you know, reports are say reporters are asking questions like what went out there and he's still sulking in. He's just something like, mm, we just played bad. We lost the game. Like <laughs> He's just going after the wings while answering this question. It's almost like he's just sitting on his couch, you know, talking on the phone or something like that, or he's just like sitting having lunch or something like that. He's still got a job to do. You know, he's not going to let lunch get in the way of that. He's still going to have that. And <laughs> You know, the first thing he says is, you know, they played better. They played shot. And he's just, you know, he's still got the wing in his mouth trying to get it out there. So it, it was just really funny to see Giannis like that. I'm sure he didn't intentionally make it to be funny. And, you know, I, I don't think he was thinking anything of it. I think, you know, it's usually his, it could be his post game, you know, meal or whatever. And someone said, you know, from PR from Milwaukee saying, hey, your press conference is right now is right now. Or maybe like he got a wing delivery and it came late or <laughs> something like that. But I understand for Giannis, it's probably not a happy time, you know, losing to Cleveland. They're sitting right now. I think they're like fifth in the uh, Eastern Conference. They're not at the top right now. I think it's still Chicago, Brooklyn, Cleveland in those standings. So I understand why Giannis would still feel a little sad, but he's just an unintentional comedian. That's all it is. You know, similar to Clay Thompson. He's an He's an unintentional comedian. I'm sure he didn't intend for uh, he, he didn't intend for anything to be funny out of that. So he he's just sitting there. He opens the lid. He takes the bite of the wings. He's looking at the stat sheet at the same time. I mean, that's just funny. You know, I had a good giggle out of it, and I'm sure Giannis wouldn't want us talking about him eating wings at a press conference and rather saying, "Oh, we're the defending champs, and we just got our butts beat by our division rivals." Uh, from Cleveland. So Giannis, I, I know this is a tough time right now. You're losing a couple games, but the fact that you come to your post-game press conference with a bucket of chicken wings, eat those wings during your press conference has landed yourself into this week's LOL moment of the week. So that will wrap it up once again for Let Me Speak. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. If you're watching us on YouTube or listening to us on any platform, Spotify or Apple Podcasts, make sure, as always, you follow our pages on social media, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. All you got to do is search Let Me Speak Podcast. And remember, as always, if you got a point you got to get across, just let the whole world know. Shut up and let me speak.